Hello, everyone. We're glad you're here. Welcome to our podcast, Foundations, Expert Concrete Training and Adventures, hosted by concretepreneur and industry-recognized expert, David Stevenson, and joined by new guests every episode. David has been in the concrete industry for over 20 years as a contractor, operator, owner, product developer, and consultant, and has started, grown, and sold contracting companies, as well as chemical manufacturing and equipment companies, and is currently the principal consultant with PCC Consulting. With clients ranging from the NFL to Amazon to the Department of Defense, the largest and most recognized brands have consulted with David for their programs and project issues. Foundations is a free podcast for general as well as specialized contractors, owners, designers and architects, developers, and other concrete enthusiasts who may enjoy and benefit from being a part of conversations David has with industry leaders and some of the incredible people he's worked with over his career. We discuss where the industry has been, where it's going, and adventures to be had along the way. Now, here's your host, David Stevenson, interrupted with the occasional question by me, Rachel Fisher. Thank you for joining us today on Foundations, our first video podcast. Today, we're joined by Brendan Smith from Scudo via Australia. He's a good friend of mine. How did we first meet, Brendan? We met at an ACI convention. American Concrete Institute convention. Yeah. Remember about how long ago? Six or seven years, I'd say. Okay. And how did that go? Oh, I was, of course, overwhelmed by your brilliance, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this guy? No, uh, yeah, no, it was, um, that, I think that was my first ACI convention, so it was all, it was all new to me. People in the industry, different committees, different groups that were on the peripheral of what, of what we do in terms of temporary, temporary protection for construction sites. So, right. yeah, it was, um, it was a good learning experience, a good did I just like walk up to you randomly or, you know, uh, sometimes I just randomly pick people to just start talking to. You I think I was, I was talking with some guys I did know, either from Husqvarna. It may have been Joe Reardon. Was he with Face yeah. then or? I can't remember. Yeah. Just those boys and the, uh, those. Yeah. I think that's how we met. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In a bar, of course, you know. In a bar. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that the thing. So, uh, yeah. So you, Scudo does protection of floors. And so as a, a polished concrete consultant, or that's the name of the company, but we do a lot more than that. We, a lot of times, get involved in construction projects very early on in the design phase. And I've had some fun projects that had a tremendous amount of damage and the products you offer protect the concrete between the day the concrete is poured and the finish or final installation of the project, whatever the flooring type may be, right? Yeah. So a little bit of a a tweak on that is there are some limitations as to when our products can be installed and what products are installed at various times. And that goes back to the moisture in the slab. So if we're effectively covering that slab, 
there's a number of factors we need to consider. Mixed design, time of year. Hopefully there's a vapour barrier underneath. Other things like the how thick the slab is. Mm-hmm. Is it slab on grade or is it Because that deck? determines how long it takes for the moisture to release. To, to yeah. release, whether it's super plasticizers or water reducers used, mm-hmm. that helps us with how much. And, of course, there's within the, the hydration of the concrete, that some of that moisture is used in that process. So there are some time delays, which, which some GCs mm-hmm. don't like. They don't like waiting because they've got other trades and they've got other. They've got to get the steel up and they've got to get on with building the um, the actual uh, the job site, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the building, as it were. So there there are some limitations. So it can't be immediately after the pour, but usually within seven to ten days onwards. You know, and again, those other factors, the thickness of the slab and time of year and that sort of thing, will will help determine when we can. Uh, when we're comfortable with having our products put down, yeah. Well, I want to get into some of those uh, technical things a little later. Let's back up a little bit. How did you end up, you know, you live in Dallas, mm-hmm. Texas. How did you end up here? Because your accent is strangely Southern. Yeah, I'm a little bit, it's funny. People say, oh, you've, where are you from? I said, oh, I live in Dallas. Said, You're not I'm from the South. And I said, oh, I'm a little bit further South, you yeah. know, keep going. So I come across... Scudo as a helped our my wife's family business, which is a marble and mosaic wholesaler in Australia. So we're at a, at a tile trade show, and we came across this um, this guy that had this this prototype product in the corner of a of another booth. He was just tagging onto that would have been two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Okay, and uh, immediately loved it. Saw the saw the potential for. Concrete, hardwood floors, tiles, terrazzo, you name it. It's, it's not only horizontal surfaces, it's also vertical surfaces. So our products aren't just for floors. We do walls, windows, glass, that's sort of metals. But anyway, but, so yeah, long story short, found Scudo. The Australian, in Australia. In Australia, yeah, so at a trade show in Australia. Because that's where you're really from, is Australia. Sorry, I, I missed that bit. I, okay. I figured I didn't want to... Someone to suggest it was New Zealand because then there's a no, there's that, a love. that would be totally insulting. Exactly right. No offense to New Zealand. No, no, and it's, it's that love hate relationship. Okay, the Anzacs. Yeah. So the Australian dis- distributorship of Scooter had already been taken, and at that stage, my brother-in-law had a business here in the states, based out of San Francisco, wholesaling uh, marble and mosaics. Okay. So I thought, all right, he's done it. You know, easy. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> There's a roadmap as a, as a, as a, uh, someone's already paved the way, as it were. So, um, yeah, a couple of years later, packed the kids, two kids and the wife up. At the time, it was going to be for two years. Okay. That was 11 years ago. And, uh, yeah, come on over. So moved to California. Moved to California, San Francisco. And it was exactly like Australia, right? A little bit. In terms of the multicultural, okay. Silicon Valley has a lot of people from all over the world sure. working there. So, but it was it was very different. Where in the Bay Area did you live? In uh, lived in in San Carlos, and then later on San Mateo, but right down in the um, Southern Bay Area. Yeah. So uh, started there, little five thousand square foot warehouse that uh, I was answering the phones, packing the orders. 
<laughs> unloading the trucks, loading the trucks, punching the invoices. I was the one man show as it, as as it's known. So uh, it was a long time ago, and and um, you know we've we've grown a lot since then, obviously. Mm. So what made you move from California to Texas? A couple of things. Freight was one of the main things. You know, we were trying to warehouse something out of San Francisco and sell it to the East Coast was near on impossible if, unless we were going to pony up for the, the whole freight, uh, freight free, and we just weren't at that, at that stage to be able to do that. Doing business in, in California is more expensive. Living in California is more expensive. So it was... It was a combination of personal and business. I mean, more in the middle of the country made it easier to bring our stuff in and then distribute it around mm-hmm. around the country. So, so yeah, we're in San Francisco for two years, and then once the lease was up on the on the warehouse, packed it all up and uh, hit the road for for Dallas. So. so, how did your wife and kids feel about a move first from Australia to California? And then just as they were kind of getting settled in in California, moving from California to Texas. Cause I know, I know that from Australians, it's not a big deal, but for some people moving from California to Texas is kind of a cultural shock. How did that work for you guys? If anything, it was more, Texans are more like Aussies in terms yeah, of so. um, more laid back. They, they look you in the eye. They say good day. You know, like there's, we say good day. They say hello or howdy. howdy. Yeah. howdy. Yeah. The kids, when we first moved from Australia were, five and two and a half like so they really didn't have an, an anchoring it's funny my, my daughter has still has an aussie accent because she, remember when she first started school in uh, san carlos mom and dad the kids just don't understand me unless i talk like them and so then within a week she had her american accent down down pat but then she was home she would um she would, you guys corrupted her again yeah yeah so she, she'd switch but my son, he never really had a chance to develop a, the Aussie accent. So um, he's, you'd never know he was from, from Oz. So, um, okay. But the move to Texas, my wife, Deborah, my lovely wife, Deborah, she um, by this stage was could see that the potential for the business and we weren't going home within two years. You know, there was still more, more work to be done and more adventures. You know, we, we, love, we love the outdoors, so... Camping's our our thing. Hiking and camping's our thing. So um, we did a lot of that in California and continued to do a lot of that in in Texas and and the surrounding states. So yeah, okay. We've probably seen more more of Texas than most Texans. I think. Well, within our with our our friendship within our friend group, that's certainly the case. So yeah, I mean, in Texas is a huge place, like yeah. Australia. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the other thing. Life and- yeah, and that's the other thing. So if you if you overlay if you overlay the map of Australia on the US, they're pretty much the same landmass. Yeah, almost the same. And so driving for four or six hours isn't a big deal for us. Right. Uh, you know, we Sydney to Melbourne, eight plus hours, Sydney to Brisbane. So we don't think much of it. So we can, we're not phased by heading down to San Antonio for a couple of days sure. uh, yeah. in a national park or whatever. So, okay. Yeah. So since you and I met, you know, at that point, you were kind of, at least in my view, kind of really just starting to get going in the States. I mean, maybe you'd done a lot in California. I had not run into you, you know, as a flooring protection type since then, you know, prior to that. But, you know, I also saw the value of your products 
I think the one of the things that kind of led me to spend more time working with you than maybe I might have before as a consultant is a project that was done right before I met you was at a school district here in down in Dallas. And it was a vocational center. So, you know, they teach high school beauticians and plumbers and HVAC repair and all kinds of stuff. So district spent a lot of money on this building. The general contractor had, I think, about $600,000 to spend on protection because the floors were polished concrete, but they were, you had bands of larger aggregate exposure with sand aggregate on both sides. You had colors and patterns rolling through it. And it was a beautiful project design. And I was the consultant on the project literally from day one. So we managed the concrete pour and, you know, had great finish work. Everything was moving along nicely. The GC on this particular project decided to pocket the floor protection. Well, the very first time that I was out there, I noticed that they had a bunch of lifts running around, which is a very tall building. So they had a bunch of lifts running around and they had screws on all the tires and everything else. So I proceeded to remind them that in their specifications and in their contract, they were required to have floor protection and required to have diapers on all the lifts and have no screws in the tires, to which the GC basically said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The architect, I think there's like 20 something architecture reports on top of my six or eight consultant reports. There's like 20 something architecture reports where the architect called them out for lack of protection. So we show up to start polishing this job conservatively, conservatively. There was probably a half a million chips, half a million dime or slightly smaller divots in the concrete. They were, they had pallets with nails on the bottom. They wouldn't try to lift up. They would lift them like an eighth of an inch and then just drag them down the hallway. Screws in the lift tires making, I could follow the electrician, chip, 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 under a light, back up, chip, 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 down to the next light. We could just follow the trails. I can tell you that electrician, HVAC, sprinkler guy, everybody was just causing nothing but problems. So we show up to polish the school and it's impossible to get anything even close to what they wanted because you had so many holes in the, in the concrete, even, you know, chips in concrete are typically deeper than a polished concrete grinder will go unless you're doing a deep grind, say nickel to quarter size aggregate. So that wasn't the intent here. So we had all these problems and I had no real recourse. Now we ended up, unfortunately, Instead of doing all the really nice architectural design, we ended up taking the whole job to a deep grind exposed aggregate and just grinding through all the damage. We still didn't get through all of it, but the repairs that we did looked, I picked a material that looked like the rock. So you can't really differentiate between the holes that are repairs and the big rocks that are exposed. But that's what we ended up having to do. So it took what I thought was a probably an award winning architectural design and scrapped it due to a lack of protection. What was the, so 600,000 not used for protection, what was the, the fix? Was uh, the bill for the 1.1 million is what they paid for the, the fix. So yeah, the GC ended up with that half a million dollar loss that the GC ended up having to cover because they didn't use the protection that yeah. 
that they had in the budget that we put in right from the beginning. So that kind of led me to go, okay, well, you know, I'd, I'd been down the road with a bunch of different flooring types and some of them, you know, they are flooring protection types. Some of them they get, you know, first time they get rained on, they curl up or they fall apart. Some of them they lift at the edges and you get sand underneath them and they just act like fine grit sandpaper sanding the slab. And some yeah. of them, you know, they'll leave marks in the finish. Some of them have hydration issues where you have, you know, if you put visqueen or plastic down, it looks like a cheetah print on the concrete because everywhere that the plastic touches is darker and everywhere the plastic's bubbled is lighter. And so no real good pattern. And so I, I've been down the road of trying a bunch of different products. And for a decorative project, like a polished concrete job, I had not found any that I was in love with, really. And then I saw your product. And so your the first product I started using was your HT mat, which you put a commercial uh, system. Was it? Yeah. yeah. So, you, you know, I call it a glue. You call it a base base coat nice i call coat. it a, it's a, a a glue we try to a better bond with the mat than it does with the slab yeah right? it has um yeah, elastomeric properties yeah so um the base coat we don't like using glue like we get all sorts of mm-hmm. uh, we oh we need three more buckets of the shit or you know we have three more buckets of the glue or adhesive because we don't want them to you to the same connotations of adhesive because Adhesive is generally in the decorative world, someone's put masking tape on the concrete and it's etched the surface or, you know, so. Duct yeah, tape. Yeah. Duct for, tape. for the audience, yeah. just so you ever, if you ever wonder, duct tape sticks so well because the glue is acidic. So you have an acid in the glue, which lets it eat and then have a really good bond to anything that it sticks to. So when you put duct tape on concrete, that acid eats the binding paste that holds the cement together. So when you peel the duct tape up, you can you look at the back of the duct tape and you've got particulate uh, attached to the back. And then you look at the floor and you've got pits. Actually, I've got a funny little side story. Is actually, so I go to a church called Hope Fellowship in North Dallas area. And we did the floors and I actually managed the floors and helped the church and we managed the floors and we polished the concrete in my church. And it turned out beautifully. You know, we dyed it a couple of colors. It was great. We finished the job about March or April. So everybody's ecstatic. Everything looks beautiful. It's a fantastic job. Everything looks great. And then summer rolls around. Well, the church ends up hiring a, like an outside group to do vacation Bible study for the summer. And I get a call on like a Friday. Hey, David, can you come by the church and look at something? We got a little bit of a problem. So we go by to, I go by to look. The vacation Bible team, without talking to the church, used duct tape to put number one through number 13 or number 14 on the floor. Cause they would say, okay, you kids go to number one. You kids go line up at the two. You kids line up at the three. And then when they peeled the duct tape up, it took not only the concrete, but also the color off the top as well. And now the church is trying to figure out, hey, I got, you know, I got numbers one through 14 here, you know, in the middle of the foyer, the the main entrance to the church in the concrete. And how do I, how do I get that fixed? And I'm like, well, there's not really an easy way to get that fixed. So glue, that's what you're talking about. That's what, yeah. You don't want to be in that bucket. No, I don't. Okay. So the, the concept is the base coat is applied to the surface 
and then while it's still wet, the, the mat is rolled out into it. And the fibres of the, of the mat, it's a coated mat, so it has a coating on the top of it, but the underside is, is still quite fibrous. So when the base coat dries, it will fuse to the back of the mat. Mm-hmm. So two-part application, but then they become one. So holds it down during construction. You don't get any dirt debris getting underneath it. And then when you peel it up, the base coat has elastomeric properties. It comes up with the mat. So a, a clean concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, just like anything, the base coat has to be applied correctly. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't, you won't go and waterproof a subterranean wall just with half the half the manufacturer's spec dosage so same thing if the base coat's applied thick enough to be film forming it will peel up clean so um that comes from from user experience and you know and we've gotten better over the many years of helping with instructional videos do's and don'ts and our skilled reps out in the um in the field will you know usually hold most people's hands for the first first install Mm -hmm. and and, uh and the train do demos and training and whatnot so Yes, the commercial system's our our flagship product, you know, and I suppose that's what sets us apart from most other, you know, for the GCs for the longest time, they've just used whatever they've been able to find. They've, you know, sometimes put together on site, I'll put some visqueen and then I'll put some masonite over the top of it. Just from, like, it worked kind of okay in the last job or someone from another job said that this works for them. Again, different parts of the country, different oh, environmental yeah. conditions. So a lot of these things are word of mouth over, over time. And so our products are really one of the, the very few that have been purposely built. And, you know, our tagline is temporary surface protection. This is all we do. This mm-hmm. is it. So we, we develop, we produce, and we manufacture our own gear. So if we see a problem in, in the field, as it were, that our customers are seeing, we'll work out our hardest to develop a product to solve, solve that problem. So, yeah. That's now, you and I talk, I think, at most about every other week. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. So By the way? People find out about your project generally after they've had a – I mean, if, if they don't know about your project before or product before, they've had a bad experience, right, with all of the myriad things that you guys have kind of discussed, and they're like, we need a better solution for protection. And so that's when you guys come in and oh, like it just kind of yeah. Sometimes it's at trade shows or referrals or with uh, or it's in the specifications, specifications or whatnot. But yeah, if, if I had a dollar for every time someone had said, "Oh, I wish I had you on my last project because of," you know, yeah. so okay. trade shows help a lot. Lunch and learns we will do with regional GC offices or city offices. We'll do demos and uh, and the likes. But yeah, the um. Yeah, there is a bit of that. I think for a lot of GCs, that's the pain point of I'm not doing that again. I'm not winging it or I'm not, I'm going to just use the same crappy product. It didn't work last time, but I'm going to install it four or five times over the project rather than getting a premium product that's specifically designed and built for that purpose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so your headache relief. So that's kind of like when we go in on consulting, like when, you know, programs don't have a, any kind of direction. So that's, so you guys are, that's interesting. So both, both perspectives coming in. Yeah, yeah. No, People and are always like, oh, I wish we would have. Yes, yeah, exactly oh, right. And they're the um, and from those adversities, sometimes they'll come up with a scenario that we 
haven't come across before. And we go, all right, we might be able to put together a product. And we've, as our, you know, we came, I came to the States with one product and now we've got, I don't know, over a dozen. And each time there's been a, there's a need, let's see if we can develop something for, for that scenario. So, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So it's actually, so there's some. Yeah. You're sitting around a, sitting around a conference room or a boardroom table, just, mm, we could do this and we'll do that. And so it's funny, our, I suppose our skill set has grown over the years because we've had to get to know polished concrete in right at the, you know, from go to woe, terrazzo, hub that's floors. Austra- that's Australian from the beginning to the end. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, thanks for the interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Subtitles. I didn't, have the, I didn't have the Australian translator. Yeah, the, the yeah subtitles right. there. Yeah, and so so there's there's those those opportunities as they were. You know that someone's problems become a, a possible solution for us to solve. So that's great. Come you up with solutions design, hmm. solutions architect. Yeah, yeah. So I was saying, you know, you and I talk about every other week. I'm guessing. Is yeah. that about right? Yeah. yeah. I'd like say that. that's fair. Yeah. What are our normal communications? How do we normally talk? It's um, it's either a text or an email, which turns into a phone call of, we've got this problem. I've got this GC. Either you'll have a GC or I'll have a GC that has a a certain something that's gone belly up, and we're really trying to to work out a, a fix, as it were. And uh, from your experience of years of consulting and and uh, you know in the field expertise i think that's uh i draw on that quite a bit trying to give our customers or our potential customers a solutions provide a solution because i tell my reps all the time i said look if we're known as someone that can as the go-to people rather than the product sales Mm -hmm. so if if my guys can get in them in that mindset of just be a solution even if you don't sell a product Mm -hmm. even if you give the heads up to to a gc to say look I know you want to use our products, but for this short window of time or the, the environment you want to put in, it's not going to be the best. We're going to refer you to X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You know, that for us is, I think, as a company, is far more beneficial and a value. If, if we can, that's the value proposition. We're a solution provider rather than a product salesman. And if, if my guys can do that, you know, I, I lean on your expertise a lot from, years of experience like you'd know how to fix hydration lines or how to some weird odd stuff yeah weird odd stuff you know well, take, this product yeah. has a little bit of a darkening agent it looks like they might have used this ask them this question and if they did do that then try this chemical because that might will take care of it yeah kind of stuff yeah. right and the same with the um same with the tape you know how yeah. do i fix this yeah well often there's not so <laughs> or um yeah so that's uh yeah so that's usually our brainstorming solutions, you know. So, honestly, I've never asked you this question, so this is a, a bit of a gamble. Green. You know, normally I end up talking to you most often, right? How do you explain me or my firm to either your reps or your customers? So, two different things. So, for for our reps, they all, all know you. We use uh, Salesforce. We use Salesforce Chatter. So if there is a, a problem in the field or a customer has come up with a scenario and needs me needs a fix and we, we talk about it and, and help them out, I will go on to the chatter and blast out 
to all the reps, hey, had this scenario, these are the circumstances, this was the timeline of, of events, this was the suggested fix. And then other guys will maybe maybe bounce back and say, oh, I've actually seen that in the field. Yeah, that would work for my customers. So it's, it's, it's sharing of knowledge, as it were. For my customers, it's a, um, a resource that will say, look, we have a consultant that we work heavily with. If you need a, a, a solution to this, or even sometimes it's it's proactive rather than reactive, you know, and that's that's what I'd rather be in front of it rather than trying to ask for solutions after the fact. I'd rather be, and that's what our, our reps do with our training is try and think through every possible scenario. And if we don't have the expertise, then we'll then definitely throw your, your name down their way. So you, you reach out to me for concrete stuff. Do you have other friends or contacts that you develop for tile and yeah. stone and other industries that you guys work with? Yeah, so we work, so as I said, when, when I was first come across Scudo, I was uh, running, helping run the um, distribution of the marble and tile industry. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's so funny, before I worked with that, that firm, uh, Artistic Stone in Australia, there, uh, US version is uh, is a different name, but I couldn't walk into a, a restaurant or a building or a hotel without looking at the floor to see what type of stone it was or a tile, the size of the tiles because the size of the Makes size the of the grout joints and mm-hmm. and then I came over here and was then and of course when I came over here, Scudo was my target market was tile and hardwood floors mm-hmm. then someone said you really should go to world of concrete and we went to world of concrete <laughs> and oh my god i opened my eyes and we've since won like four uh, most innovative product awards in 10 years so of attending the show but now of course i can't walk into anywhere that has concrete whether it be polished sealed stained or terrazzo without my eyes are always down. I'm, I must be running into things all the time because I'm always looking at the floor. I resemble that problem. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's a fellow that works with us. He's our um, he's our technical director, Kieran Wiley. He used to work for me, well, for Artistic Stone in Australia. He was our Queensland rep. He then came over to the States, worked in my brother-in-law's company, and then came to work for us. So he's got... 40 years of marble and tile industry and through our his contacts who would also wholesalers that also would be selling hardwood floors and the like so and then also someone else we've got for, for terrazzo so yeah we've got a fair few so you have an inherent database you know knowledge base for those and Ex- just not as much for concrete exactly right yeah okay. we don't have the practical experience that we we have to reach out to you on, yeah. Just was curious. No, no, yeah. The, um, you know, it's always interesting to me to, to kind of talk to people about, I see the world from my perspective, but I don't know as much about what the world views me personally or my company. I don't really kind of think about the outside perspective backwards as much and- because I'm too busy looking, you know, out. <clears throat> everyday problems. I suppose that's your perspectives are dictated by your experience and your your knowledge mm-hmm. on a certain thing. So, um, yeah, I, it's very interesting. Even, 
you know, senior superintendents and project managers that don't know what they don't know, but should know in the basic workings of concrete. Oh, you know, we've got to be, it's got to be protected in three days after the pour and I need to put up steel. And, you know, I get that, but the cure you've put down is this, it's a dissipating cure and you're going to cover it with, right. so, so it's going to get no UV sunlight, going to get no traffic. How's so it going to dissipate? It's not going to dissipate. You realize that it needs 30 days, almost 30 days of UV in order to break down. Yeah. And different products have different timelines mm-hmm. and have different requirements and at different penetrating mixes, you know. So it is interesting that, like, I, I still am learning every day on, in that field and, and in this industry, we have shifted our focus from, and maybe it's the, we've been pulled in that direction or it's the lowest hanging fruit, but we're constantly, concrete is, you know, 80% of, of what we do, whether it be stairs, whether it right. be pre-polish, post-polish, post-staining. So there's, there's other well, aspects I mean, to it. The industry is moving that way. So for those of you watching, polished concrete, when we started doing it about, give or take a little bit over 20 years ago, there was nothing. It, it came over from Europe as a, basically a hybrid from the stone polishing, terrazzo polishing industry. And in the 20 years that we've been polishing concrete, you know, we moved from basically zero to in 2021, we surpassed 40% of all hard surface flooring projects, new construction in the United States. So to, I mean, that's a meteoric growth rate insanity. So to give you some perspective, uh, ceramic tile took 90 years to get to the same point. Polished concrete did in 20 years. So the, the world, especially commercially, the world is moving towards polished concrete. The U.S. is, uh, kind of leading the way. But, you know, I mean, I get calls regularly on projects in Africa and Asia and Europe all the time. We were in Italy, what, just a few weeks ago dealing with projects. So the polished concrete is itself has exploded and it's for specific reasons. Number one, the, probably the, the maintenance cost. It's not a no maintenance, but it is a low maintenance floor comparatively. It's about 10% the cost of maintaining VCT or vinyl tile and about 45 or 40% the cost of maintaining a standard tile floor. So if you're a big retailer, you know, big box retailer, or even a smaller format retailer, the difference in moving from a tile floor to a concrete floor can mean hundreds of millions of dollars a year in maintenance savings. Well, if you can show even just a $50 million a year increase without selling one more skew out the door, (laughs) yeah, that's, I mean, that's pure profit, right? So the switch from the other hard surface flooring types to concrete has been extremely rapid and seems to be growing like a, like a hockey stick, you know, vertically. It wouldn't surprise me if we don't hit 50% in the next three or four or five years. I don't know. I mean, but we're taking the market share away from the markets, you know, the company that you came over here to represent, which is stone and tile, right? And yeah. that's where the market share is coming from. It's not coming from wood much. It's not coming from like residential stuff. Okay. It's mm-hmm. commercial hard surface materials switching over to concrete. So yeah, you got maintenance, you got the appearance, you got color and aggregates and all kinds of stuff as things have 
have gotten more standardized. I think that the downside is that it's grown so fast that there's a, you know, kind of a still a wild west of the industry, which you get to see some yeah. as the protection because you can have three companies doing the polished concrete, the same concrete in the same region done by the same contractor, done by the same general contractor and see three different results. And they come back to you and try to blame it on, on your products, right? Sometimes. Yeah. And, and sometimes, yeah. And so that goes back to attention to detail. And also you get what you pay for. If you go the lowest bidder and I get that government projects are required to go to the lowest bidder, but sometimes, yeah. And so you do get what you paid for it. And just like our industry, surface protection, if you're going to go for, there are still places that put red Roslyn paper, it still blows my mind as to why it's red. It leaches red dye if it gets Into wet. The concrete, so yeah. I don't understand why that is still a thing, but you've got that at one end and then some. That's just in California. Yeah. <laughs> You've got some premium products that actually do the job, yeah. you know. So, and again, I've used this this term a lot, horses for courses. There are some scenarios where you would use our commercial system. Some scenarios you'd use our board. Some use our tack mat. And, and it's, it's knowing the more information we've got, the better we can advise on the suitability. And, and it's sometimes that conversation isn't had until after the fact. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should have used this. But I didn't. I used this one because it was cheaper or whatever. And you know. as the consultant, I hear that all the time. As yeah. a consultant, I hear, you know, oh, I would love to use that product, but it's so expensive. And I'm like, well, I can give you 10 project examples where the fix, because you didn't use a product like this, is a lot more expensive than the amount of money that you would spend on the product. And labor is the biggest, mm-hmm. biggest budget item. And yes, this probably today. Oh, in and, the, and in, trying to find people. Yeah. I mean, decent people, let alone yeah. someone with a heartbeat that can push a broom or someone that can actually understand what you want and actually do it time and time again. That's day and night from using product A that is a third of the cost of Scudo or one of our products, but you've got to put it down four times. Yeah, three or four or five times. Through the Forget that, road. but it's the actual labor of having said laborer go around and say, okay, rip up that, replace that area, replace that area. Every time he picks up a, the protection that they've decided to run with, he picks it up, all the crap falls off it, mm-hmm. and then puts the new one straight over the top of it, and then you've got the traffic and then it's the sandpaper. The sandpaper action, yeah. Yeah, so again, whether it's it's not in it's in the psyche or it's in, mm-hmm. in the, the scope of people's thinking, and I think it's a growing concern in terms of a, a knowledge base that people need to have. I see the guys that have come out of, out of college and a lot of business construction schools, like the younger PMs and the, the guys who will be superintendents or senior superintendents, they've been taught to not run with the old thing. They've been taught to, okay, you do it properly the first time, you know, there's, yeah. you don't. It's because I'm teaching their classes. Yeah. <laughs> the callbacks and the, the subbies, whether they be, Subbies is Australian for subcontractors. Subcontractors, yeah. So subbies don't want to come back because they don't want to remobilize for a fix. Once all the walls and and the framing's gone up, they can't get big, if it's polishing, they can't get big machines in there. Can't get big equipment in, yeah. Can't get in the lift. 
now that the the lift well which was from the um the freight elevator is now dismantled it's not existent mm-hmm. power so those sorts of things are really it's a headache for them so and they're going to charge accordingly to the gc so then that's when comes that cost you know just do it right the first time and be done with it like insurance so i had a um a customer, a massive project actually in Seattle area that recently was using your commercial system. And then, you know, this was a, I want to say it's about a half a million square foot project. And they did a remodeled about 250 or 300,000 square feet and added on 250,000 or so square feet to the site, to the building. And so the system they were using was your commercial system throughout with a board system and they're really high traffic areas. So both on the construction side, high traffic. So where they're dragging in pallets and big lifts and all kinds of stuff. But then also on the, as they were moving around the temporary entrances and temporary traffic patterns for customers, they were using your, your Scudo board system on top of their commercial, of the commercial system. Help me understand, you know, A, what's the, how long has the, the board been around and what are the kind of the best uses for that in, ex, in exchange? Because I, the same GC asked me, well, if I just use the board, what will that do? And my answer was, well, I'm worried about the joints on the board and hydration lines from your joints between the board. But if it's over the commercial system, I didn't have any concern with that. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the commercial system, and I should have mentioned this earlier, the commercial system is breathable. So whereas the board is not, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, think of it as plastic plywood, mm-hmm. four by eight sheet, very hard wearing, very, very strong. And, and, and this just goes back, you've seen this, but when you've gone into a restaurant that has had tile, and then they've gone to a polished concrete. You can see the ghosting of the, yeah. the 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 framing of where the tiles used to be. So that was from the moisture being couldn't go through the tile, so it goes into the grout joint, so it funnels up. So that's an example of what you were talking about in terms of the the joins around the boards. Mm-hmm. So the mat itself allows moisture to come up consistently. Consistently, yeah. yeah. And so if there's board on top of it in a high traffic path, as it were, it's still going to go laterally and then up through it. So although it is breathable, it breathes slower than if it wasn't there. That's, that's just common sense. But the board itself is four by eight sheets, as I said, fire retardant. That doesn't mean fireproof. No. no Cause you so. can still get it to burn. Yeah. Yeah. Fire retardant means it is harder to get it to burn. Well, it, it, it won't. It won't propagate the flame. Yeah. So you can put a well, put a match to it. You know, so welding and grinding. And we've got some videos on our website that show guys with a cutting torch right over the board, probably you know what a, a foot off off the ground, and it didn't even didn't even bother. It didn't phase it. And again, that's fire retardant and fire resistant things are different. And that's in the more of the fabrics side of things. But yeah. Bricks will burn at a certain temperature, so you know yes. this, this, it's all relative. But the board is it's quite it's quite versatile, and its its popularity is it's exploding because it, it is it's reusable. So if someone's got it in a straight run down the middle of a of a, of a high traffic aisle, and, and again, they're four by eight sheets, so you can either 
put them side by side or you can brick bond them, stack bond them, or even herringbone to, for, for a stronger structure. And then they'll, they'll take them from that floor, they'll take them up to the next floor or they'll, they'll take mm-hmm. them to the next job. Yeah, so, that's what I've seen. So they're, they're, it's quite, quite versatile in, in that respect. We have another version of that, that which is it's called the interlock. So it has effectively T-pieces, think of a tongue and groove, but, but laterally, and it's designed for guys that need to work in a commercial aspect after hours. So they need to mobilise in and then demobilize once they're finished work okay. overnight. So these things will pack onto a pallet, stick them outside, oh, or stick gotcha. them, you know, put them in the trailer. So like puzzle pieces that exactly fit together. Right. They're already pre so they allow pre-cut, them, pre-made. To fit yeah, together. exactly. So you don't right. Guesswork or anything. Yeah, allow you to get from the front door to where the work is doing, whether it be polishing or whatever, mm-hmm. or demo. A lot of um, demolition companies are using our stuff. Yeah. Now I have a, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> We, I had a project recently that, that had a floor protection that was not yours, but I won't say the name. And they decided first they had an interior courtyard and they took a, a sky track, a big tall high lift and they had it in the courtyard and they decided to keep working even after like four inches of rain. And so they buried the sky track up to the top of the wheels. So about four and a half feet in the mud. So then they kept trying to get it out, couldn't get it out. So they decided to drive a tracked dozer through the main entrance of the building down about 90 feet of hallway to where the courtyard was so they could use the tracked dozer to pull out the sky track. Now, would your, your board hold up to that? How durable is it? Yeah, so we've we've had the board, we've had 100-ton cranes driving over and setting up on the board. Yeah but it had a stable base of concrete underneath it. Oh, yeah, there's concrete here. So, okay. The particular floor protection they used had, I wouldn't say zero, but somewhere between zero and 1% protection. Okay. And so what we had on the polished concrete with multiple colors and a high decorative area, the main entrance to a college, we had backhoe track marks all down the middle of the hallway destroying the concrete underneath the floor protection yeah so um, so it had good base so yeah so i was thinking it was going to be on the soil no no this was a finished building Fairly finished. they wow. took the front doors off the front the entire front aluminum facing of the building came off so they could get the dozer inside wow yeah yeah glass aluminum yeah the whole thing <sighs> Yeah, so I, I would have put the board down and then our all-terrain mat over the top of that. Our all-terrain oh, okay. mat is a uh, is a walk-off mat that effectively is like a three and a half, three point three feet wide, and but you can for rough terrain you can stake them down. It's like a site walk, walk-off mat, but it has extremely strong cushioning effect. So, so it spreads out the weight. Spreads the weight. Yeah. Yes, you okay. can you can just you can zip tie them or. Uh, get some wire and, and put two or three courses together to to have that that track drive on it. But, okay. Okay. So the other product that I that I want to talk about or mention. So this actually has zero percent to do with concrete. So I was at the World of Concrete. This was several years ago, and you had a, a little clear plexiglass box set up, mm-hmm. and you had a, a piece of rebar in there where you could put your hand in with an angle grinder and gloves, you know, and and turn the angle grinder on, hit the piece of rebar, and shoot sparks up. 
And then you had a piece of glass dropped in. And on one side you had, uh, what does it call it? Glass advance? Glass advance, yeah. Glass advance. And so then you had half the piece of glass that had the, the glass advance on it and the other piece of the glass that had nothing on it. And then when you pulled it out, you peeled, you literally just pulled it off. I don't know, like just, a, like just, a sticker. Yeah, it peels off on the glass on the side that had the glass advance. And you had zero damage. And on the other side that had no protection, the, the, uh, the glass was just pitted and destroyed. Right. Okay. So I had a restaurant group, a restaurant chain that's a customer of mine that I'm the consultant for their floors, but they just in a random conversation as we were walking, driving around looking at, uh, at some of their stores. They explained that they get, they have a, their storefronts are all along major roads and they end up getting their windows really dirty and they get hit quite often with rocks just because of where they are in the country and the, okay. the debris that's on the roads, you know, and they're in a mountainous area. So debris that's on the roads. And so they're just, we're complaining about how, you know, they're always having to fix their glass in the front of the store. Cause we, I noticed that like the third store we went to had issues. So I told them about your glass advance and, and they, I think, uh, started buying it and they would spray it on the outside of their already open buildings because it has kind of a bluish color. And that was the same as their brand color. So they would spray it and peel it once a year and spray and put a new coat on. And then I shared that same information with some grocery groups who now put it on the front of their, all of their cooler cases. Now that has nothing to do with concrete, but tell me a little bit about that or tell everybody else a little bit about that because I think it's a pretty interesting product. Yeah. So the glass advance, it's a spray on, it's a liquid dry, it peels off as a film. It can be used on glass, aluminum mullion, so you know, the frontage for mm-hmm. the storefront shop for the framing, stainless steel, anything that's not acrylic. Can I spray it on my daughter to protect her from her boyfriend? That might be uh I'll have to get back to you. We'll have to see oh, okay. what the... Yeah. <laughs> just, just do a random yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's a fantastic product. It's used a lot to protect glass and windows from masonry. Yeah. So whether it be the render or the cement or that comes from from the, the floors above, from, from if some welding, grinding, so it's flame retardant from those, from the grinding sparks. Mm-hmm. Even like acid washing, people that need to acid wash brick or, oh, okay. or so it will protect the glass from, from being etched or damaged that way. Any overspray like sealers and, and whatnot. Yeah. So they, um, so one of our, some of our biggest customers are, are masonry businesses that, that realize that if they don't protect the glass, they're going to have to pay for the repair. They're on, they're on the hook for it. Yeah. So yeah, so it's better to, again, it's just like cheap insurance is, just do it right the first time okay. and we'll be done with it. So, yeah, we do have a blue. We can make it in a tinted color, which we did for an airport once where they were doing some work in a terminal, but they didn't want – so they had some welding work. They were doing like an expansion for the, the terminal. Mm-hmm. So they were doing some welding. But they didn't want the arc flare to damage the, um, mm-hmm. the site of the pilots who were coming up and parking at the gates. Okay. So we, we, we tinted it for them. So that helped out and it can, can be clear as well. So yeah, it's a versatile product and out of all of our products, it's the, um, it's the one that's, it's the forgotten sheep of the family, but it's one of the most, um, as a, as a concrete guy, I've been impressed with the, 
protection ability, even though it has nothing to do with the work that I do normally. Every well, day. You know, you know, when you have guys that are pouring footpaths out the front of storefronts, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a sidewalk. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So sidewalk. Yeah. So the, the splash of, of the concrete during the pour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I can it's, see that. Yeah. It, it helps a lot. All right. So changing direction, you know, coming from Australia, which obviously is a, somewhat close but quite different culture than here in the United States. There is a different, I assume that there's probably a different level of business education or the way that you run a business in Australia versus the way that you run a business here in the United States. Having been a businessman both in Australia and in the United States, what are some things that are different and what are some things that people in the United States that run small to medium-sized businesses, what are some lessons that you can give us on things that you wish more people in the U.S. knew? I think there's, for the most part, it's the trades. Trades in Australia, even though if you ever see photos of tradesmen wearing like work boots with shorts, they're in Oz. You don't have to have long, it's normal, you don't have to have long pants. So, but it's the attention to detail, like every tradesman has gone through his apprenticeship, whether skilled labor, there is no, effectively, I don't think there's any unskilled labor. For every guy on a job site, he's either an apprentice or has been an apprentice and he's working his way through his craft, as it were. Mm-hmm. I think that that helps a lot in terms of attention to detail, especially with, it, with our products, you know, reading the instructions, working out, okay, I've got some stairs or I've got, this odd shaped room, how am I going to work around instead of just a, just a laying out our, our products in a straight run? That's one of the, the biggest things that I've noticed. Yeah. Please forgive me. I, w- yeah, I yeah. want to make sure that I understand that. So what you're saying is in the United States, in some industries, the growth and the normal operating procedure in the United States moves faster so we end up with less skilled tradesmen than in australia where i i don't know maybe the uh, economy is such or they've just built up the infrastructure to the point where most subcontractors regardless of what work they're doing have more training in australia than what they have in the united states is that what you're saying potentially and remember i the only industry I had exposure to in Australia was the tile industry. So in terms of the construction side of things, gotcha. I did other things, obviously, um, more on the accounting and finance side of things. But like those technical colleges you, you talked about, they're everywhere. So you get to year 10, which is 15 and 16, and you either go to high school or you go to TAFE. Which so is, 10 means grade 10, meaning like, yeah. you know, like a sophomore in high school in the United States. Right. And sophomore. at that point, you make a decision whether you want to move into a trade, which yep. then you'll start getting trained, not only through the basics of school, like math and reading and whatnot, but you'll get trained in that particular yep. trade versus in the United States where we don't, there are technical colleges, but they only cover about six and a half percent of high school graduates go to a technical college. The rest either don't go to any college or they go to a university. And none of that happens until after they graduate high school, which is 12th, finished 12th grade. 
So at a minimum, the U.S., they're three years behind Australia in making a determination and saying, I'm going to learn to be a plumber or a welder or an electrician. Sparky or, or you know, yeah, a tile whatever, yeah. installer or whatever, right? Yeah. That's well, interesting. And the cost of living in, in Oz is dramatically higher than, than here, but the standard wages are also triple what they are here. Right. So, so, so it's, 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 yeah, it'll, yeah. But yeah, like, so you, you'll have, I went to school with some guys who either left at year 10 just to go to, to be a, an apprentice full time, right? Not all, or go into the field and work with a business to say. Okay, so they start their apprenticeship, don't even finish through 12th grade. They, 10th grade, they finish and then they say, so, I'm going to be an electrician. So I might as well go to work for an electrician. Or, and then, now and and start learning. The yeah. Trade. And, the, or there's, in between where you can say, you know, I'm going to see you out high school. I'm going to go through to year 12, but I want to take some, some trade yeah. classes. So for those classes, they would go off, off campus and go to, go to TAFE, T-A-F-E. That was back in my day. I don't know what it's called now. Well, I think we're in the United States. I think we're, we had that before, but mainly it was more agricultural. So you go through like, um, especially in the South, you had FFA, Future Farmers of America, and then you had ag programs through school and you could do an ag work program where typically the second half of the year. So from January until August, you could basically leave halfway through the day and go to work in an agricultural job like farming or ranching or something like that. Yeah. I never, at least when I was in school, I never really saw that for any other trades. But as a consultant, I see more and more of the high schools doing these vocational buildings. Like I said, we talked about the project earlier where they're, you know, as part of your high school education, you're spending, you know, learning to be an air conditioning repairman or an electrician or a, a beautician or, you know, do Mechanical hair or whatever, yeah. yeah, whatever. And so I'm starting to see more of that now, but so that's been typical in Australia for a couple of decades. And we're just now in the U S just now getting there. I think a lot of our trades in the United States, and this is something that I see as a consultant, we want to commoditize everything. So we want to take everything into a, a death spiral of how cheap can it go? How cheap can it go? How cheap can you get it? How cheap can you get it? And so the GCs and the owners want to continually pay the cheap price, even if that means they give up on the quality, they count that against the money that they saved by paying less than what they contracted, what it would cost to install what they contract. So they get less than what they contracted for. And that, that creates kind of an adversarial relationship between the owner and the GC and then the subcontractors where the subcontractors have bid you know, I'm going to use a random example. So I'll use polish gunk. So I had a project last month that the cost, I wrote the specifications and I know quite a bit about the contracting side. So I know that the specifications that I wrote have a cost of $3 per square foot, give or take five cents, somewhere right around $3 a square foot. And then the owner decided to, through with the GC working it to take a contractor that bid a dollar seventy five a square foot. 
So they've got a, a project that if you do it per the specs is going to cost $3 a foot. And they accepted a bid for $1.75 a foot. And I asked him, I said, well, if I gave you a budget of $3 and you carried a budget of $3.10, why did you take a contractor that was $1.75? And the answer was, well, if they can do the job, we just made $1.35 on every square foot. Like, well, but in order for that contractor to do this job, he's going to lose a dollar and 35 cents a square foot. It's not, he's not going to make any profit. He's going to be losing a dollar and a quarter a foot. Just propagating the issue. Yeah. Yeah. So you set the contractor up where he says, well, what I bid is to do this. And so either the contractor goes in the hole and loses money or more likely what will happen is they'll provide a product that doesn't meet the contracted work or the specifications, but the owner saved money in doing so. So when you do that day in, day out, day in, day out, that drives the price of the whole industry down, Mm -hmm. which then forces like scab fixes work, which means you don't have as good a quality of work, which means that the entire industry suffers from a lower quality of work and more failures which then takes some of the wind out of the sails of the entire industry. Yeah. I got, I got to wonder too if, you know, the price increases that we're seeing now across the board that, that basically are related to supply. Yep. You know, some be, of them. you know, yeah. Lion's share of our price increases are from the shipping and, and freight and whatnot. But I got to wonder if that is going to be the leveler, you know, with the prices going up. That these guys that are that are low, the low bidders that, that they just they just can't survive. I don't know if that's going to be the the cleansing through no, the industry. No, I think they'll. To your point, I'm going to say something that I've said multiple times before, and I'm going to use pick my industry to begin with. So, in Australia, you know, if you're a concrete installation contractor, so you place and finish new concrete, I would assume based on what you've stated that you have certified Installers. So guys that have been through training, they, they have more information about the product they're installing and they've been through more certifications and whatnot, right? In the US, we're give or take three to five generations from training. So by and large, we look at uh, submittals every day for projects all across the country. And it is very rare for us to see a contractor that has a certified flatwork ACI, American Concrete Institute, certified flatwork finisher. Very rare to see them on a job. Most of the time, what you've got is 10 to 15 years ago, a guy was a certified flatwork technician. And then he trained another guy in his company. And then that guy trained his brother or his cousin And then that guy trained a friend. Chinese whispers. Yeah. Yeah. And then that guy trained one other guy that's related or not related. And that guy is doing the installation work today. So we're three to five generations away from any training. Well, what that results in is guys that have, they say, oh, you know, I need to finish these floors by burning in the concrete. Not realizing that by burning in, in the concrete finishing terms, means that you continue to trowel the concrete with a steel troweled blade on a power trowel machine after the concrete is set up and hard. So 
instead of you moving material around and flattening the concrete or bringing up cement paste, what you end up doing is creating a huge amount of friction and that friction melts the sand particulate that's near the surface and turns it into basically like a slag glass. So like a really weak, soft glass at the surface, but it turns dark and gives kind of a black finish and it's a little bit shiny. So finishers think, oh, I need to burn it in in order to do a good job. Not realizing that by burning it in, they take away a huge amount of the strength of the slab in, in total. And no matter what, if you try to put tile on that, that glass is going to be a bond breaker and it's going to peel off and delaminate. You put carpet on it, it's going to delaminate. You put stone on it, it's going to delaminate. You try to go polish it and the grinders, you know, ride on top of the glass and have to get really aggressive to grind through the glass. And then they drop in and then you got big exposed aggregate. Because as soon as you break through that glass layer... Well, you can't like time it perfectly that, oh, you know, this half of a second I broke through. Now instead you've got aggressive diamonds on soft concrete underneath. But since they're five generations away from ever being trained on how to actually finish, they don't realize that that causes a problem. Yeah. That's a big issue, right? Even even to that point. So when they burn it, they're dewatering the surface. Exactly. But that moisture is capped. Now yep. in the slab, so the it hydration harden the surface. The, the hydration can only use up so much of it. You tear through the cap, then it starts coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, and and either the thin sets or the the hardwood floor adhesives or the carpet adhesives these days aren't what they used to be, right? And they're all moisture because they're sensitive. Driven down for a cheaper price, cheaper price, cheaper yeah, price. Yeah, and you got failures left, right, and center. Yeah. It's though that was what I was referring to in terms of. They don't know what they don't know in terms of the ramifications of doing A means that later on down, you know, get to Z. So in just in general, your materials go on. It's some part between concrete placed and finish and the completion of a job. By the time that your materials are removed, sometimes you're two years away from the concrete being poured. But the issues that come up related to Scudo products actually go all the way back two years prior to the installation of the concrete and maybe some issues at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, we may say, don't use this with this. And they are, well, screw it, we'll do it anyway. Yep. And And two years later. Two years later, oh, lo and behold, uh, we've got some, whether it be efflorescence or we've got hydration lines or, oh, we didn't want to wait or, you know, the the potential is, is... Limitless, but again, communication is the key. Talking, the more we can be involved, just like any other sub, the more we can be in, involved in that pre-con meeting. The design. And the design is, is crucial because we can head off a lot of issues. So one of the things that I run into, and then we'll kind of wrap up here, is by the time that two years or year plus has passed, and the material issues that from two years ago pop up, the concrete contractor has been paid out and the money for the whole job is gone. And now you're at the end of the project with a very finite amount of money left with a significant problem with a contractor that's got paid a year plus ago. The GCs and owners understandably want to try to find the lowest common denominator to fix the problem 
which they come back to Scudo or go to the polished concrete contractor, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's just we, we were last on the floor for, for some of those scenarios, but that's when we do have issues. You know, like it, it's not always the case. You know, some majority, the lion's share of our product of our projects go swimmingly. You know, don't have issues and yeah. don't have issues. So, yeah. So it's it's always a problem of oh, I, I didn't want to listen to you, but now I want you to fix the problem. Right. You know, so. Now that everybody else has been paid, I want it to be your problem. Yeah. And I yeah. want you to deal with fixing. And, you know, right? and, and for the most part, you know, the, the guys put their big boy pants on and go, well, you know, that's that's my my issue. And that has made, I suppose those as one-offs really do make our our industry or our, our reps initially, essentially document all the advice that we give. So if we go to a pre-con meeting, we say, oh, yeah. hey, look, I, you shouldn't use that. You should do this or you shouldn't do put Follow this down the then. Email. So, hey, look, as per our discussion, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, so there's there's a, there's a paper trail. But cover your ass is one thing, but at the end of the day, we want the project to, that we're related to to go swimmingly. Just smooth. Yeah. And no issues. No issues and then repeat customers. And so, you know, sure, there's, there's some bloody nightmare projects where someone said, oh, you know, the commercial system has a 12-month window. Two years later, someone's saying, oh, this is not peeling up right. Well, you know, it's been two years. Where else? It's like opening up a... a, a like driving a, a, a car for two years with no oil change? No, opening up a jar of olives that have expired a year ago and, and then trying to up, be upset with the um, the manufacturer that they made you sick. Mm. You know, okay. like... Yeah, that's good. How is that fair or... or responsible you know so on their behalf of their own actions so in construction you're always going to have people either cutting corners lowest bid can't wait don't want to listen to you because Mm -hmm. they know more they think they know more we're experts in our industry in our portion of this industry Mm -hmm. we're not saying by any stretch of the imagination that we know everything about you know what as much as you do for example but we know a good deal because we're having to go on to that substrate. We know that we should avoid this scenario. We know that we should communicate more. We should review this or be involved more often in terms of the process. And whenever that happens, it's all good. So if you have one piece of advice that you could say to all your potential customers or your potential contractor installers, what would it be? What would be the thing that's like, this is the biggest problem I see all the time and I wish that it was different? What would that be? It wouldn't be, this is the biggest problem. It would be use our expertise, use us, involve us more, isolating us out of the conversation with the owners because of cost or isolating or not including us in the pre-con meetings because of whatever reason or ignorance or you don't know, or you don't know what you should know is the biggest cause of, of potential issues. We have guys in the field that have been in this industry, you know, as I said, like Kieran's been in the flooring industry for 40 odd years. He's seen a thing or two. We have resources in our manufacturing divisions, whether it be in Asia, whether it be in Australia, whether it be in the UK, whether it be in South America, they know a thing or two in terms of how our products are put together. Sure. And here in the States as well. So use us. We're not an afterthought to call on 
most manufacturers are that way. Most manufacturers want to, they sell a gallon of product through a distributor that buys from a regional distributor that buys from them. And there are two or three degrees of separation removed from the contractor that's installing their product. And they don't really want the liability. They don't want to be involved. They just want to sell their product for a cheap price. And, you know, they count their success on the number of gallons of whatever sold. You guys are different. We have rebuffed advances from the big dogs to sell our products because we know exactly that. The guy on the desk, the guy on the phones, we're one of 10,000 products. They cannot know what they need to know without our inclusion. So we say, look, we don't want that business because buy, we'd be buying a floor because they didn't ask the right question. They yeah. put product A down when product B should have been used. Sure. So we would rather deal direct with the GC and that's what we do here in Texas. Mm-hmm. We don't have any distribution because we're the manufacturer sure. and the distributor. There's no one knows it better than us. So yeah. we don't want to have that message filtered out or diluted for it because someone doesn't know or, or they have a staff turnover of two people per year. The guy we trained yesterday, he's gone next week. Yeah. You know, so it's not worth our problem. So that solidifies our our integrity in terms of we know what we know, we know what you should know, we know what the questions that should be asked to the GC. So in, that's what I mean by including us is is key. Yeah. Okay. Well, how do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? ScudoUSA.com. So it's S- S-K-U-D-O. S-K-U-D-O. <laughs> not, not Scudo. It's funny. The O used to be orange and people used to go, oh, Scud. And, and you know, <laughs> okay, yeah. So we changed it to the same. So scudousa.com. We're based here in Dallas, Texas. The office number is 973-992-0777. Give us a call. We, you know, if you've got any questions and that in terms of the, the advice that, that also goes to owners and architects mm-hmm. right at the, at the outset when these the guys are specifying phase. the design phase, it's huge. Yeah. You know, oh, we had all these problems with all of our other projects. Let us know. Like, we'll tell you if we can be useful or not. Because the last thing we want to do is have any screw ups that is somewhere related to our name. So, uh, yeah. Well, I yeah. appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, yeah. Talk again soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you like this episode of Foundations, be sure to head over to our website, expertconcretetraining.com for training videos and content tailored to your needs, interests, and job role. You can find topic and or document links from today's discussion in the episode notes on our website. We appreciate your feedback, questions, and support. For specific job-related technical questions, please go to the Experts on Demand tab at expertconcretetraining.com. To suggest a topic for discussion on the podcast, please email info at expertconcretetraining.com. On behalf of David and myself, thank you for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. The hosts and guests presented within this podcast have experience working with concrete, allowing them to provide insight concerning various construction conditions that might differ for the listener. The content materials, as well as the products referenced within this podcast, are presented for general information only and are not presented as professional advice. Reference to specific products or service providers does not constitute an endorsement nor illustrate that a particular result can be achieved. 
Listeners should take care to follow all product manufacturers' warnings and instructions and understand all applicable safety codes. The opinions, views, and statements made within this podcast are those of the hosts and guests only. If you have any questions, concerns, or issues on your project and need additional support, please reach out to your manufacturer or consult with a firm like ours for specific and direct assistance with your particular needs and concrete.